I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, where we explore the ways music makes our lives better. If you love music, and those of you who are listening to this podcast, the odds are high that you fit that description, you've probably heard music referred to as the universal language, and you've probably heard people say that everybody loves music. Well, there actually is an exception to this rule. There are people who derive zero pleasure from music. Music just doesn't really do anything for them. They are either completely neutral about music or they may even actively dislike music. This population experiences what is called musical anhedonia. We are much more familiar with words describing the opposite of anhedonia, words like hedonism and hedonist that describe the pursuit of pleasure. Joining us today to help us unravel yet another way that our brains perceive and respond to music is psychology and neuroscience researcher, Dr. Psyche Louie. Dr. Louie is a musician, associate professor of creativity and creative practice at Northeastern University and director of the MIND Lab. MIND is an acronym that stands for Music, Imaging, and Neural Dynamics Laboratory. Welcome to Enhance Life with Music Psyche. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I don't know if I had heard of musical anhedonia until I read Nina Krauss's book of Sound Mind a couple of years ago. My understanding is that anhedonia is the inability to feel pleasure from any experience, but that some people specifically do not find music pleasurable. They find joy in other typically enjoyable experiences like food and also including other art forms like visual art, possibly, and non-musical sounds like laughter. And when that's the case, we refer to this situation as musical anhedonia. Am I correct and accurate in that? And then is it, what else should we understand about the difference between anhedonia and musical anhedonia? Yes. Yeah, so anhedonia is really in general, a lack of pleasure, not only in music, but in general hedonic activities, right? Or that other that people act- would find really enjoyable. Right. So most okay. people would find some kinds of foods to be enjoyable. Most people would find for example, a long walk on the beach to be enjoyable. Um, Most people find socializing with friends and family to be enjoyable. Uh, Most people also find music to be enjoyable. And this is something that we've seen in every culture um, from a very young age um, and all the way through life. So, but people with general anhedonia, this might be a symptom of depression or it might be a symptom of grief, right? So some sometimes that's um, that's not very specific to specific musical anhedonia, which is what we're yeah. talking about. And so people with specific musical anhedonia don't enjoy music, but th- we're also seeing that they don't enjoy sounds, don't derive the same pleasure from environmental sounds, um, whereas their hedonic responses for everything else might be spared and quite normal. Okay, so musical hedonia and hedonia, people do not derive pleasure from other sounds like, say, an audience clapping or waves on a beach or a rippling brook, things like that, because I was under the impression that they did, just not with music. So tease that out a little bit for us. Right. So in the first 
case of specific musical anhedonia that we saw, um, this gentleman, who will call him B.W., he told me that he also didn't enjoy um, the sounds of rustling waves on the shore, for example, um, or uh, the sounds of rustling leaves um, (laughs) in, in the trees. And these are sounds that many other folks would generally enjoy and report to be pleasurable. And so these aren't musical sounds, at least they're not, they're not intended to be musical sounds, um, right? Uh In the way most people would generally describe them, but they do um, kind of differentiate between what specific musical anhedonia seems to be and just a, a more general anhedonia. So, so this original case Case BW had no difficulty, you know, enjoying good food or likes money as much as anybody else, or um, uh-huh. right, and and likes you know social society and, and likes visual art as much as anybody else. Um, but it's really specific for for sounds. Okay, so that was this original case. Is that pretty constant throughout other cases of musical anhedonia? Or are there some cases where they do experience pleasure from laughter or other sounds, just not music? Right. So there's also reports that people with specific musical anhedonia do enjoy pleasure from sounds. And they also do show a difference between positive and negative sounds, right? For example, a sounds, uh, most people would prefer uh, sounds of a baby laughing over the sounds of a baby vomiting, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> like, um, you know, and so that difference between positive and negative sounds uh, was previously shown to be the same in people with musical anhedonia compared to matched control participants. But what we think might be going on is um, that if you're looking at grown-ups, right, these are adults with specific musical anhedonia and no other obvious abnormalities, right? So they're people like uh-huh. you and me who are you know, ha- who have grown up in a society uh, where they're socialized to find some things to be pleasant and other things to be not pleasant. So those associations might have built up over time such that even if they had not started out finding certain sounds to be appealing, um, they might be so generally associated with positive social situations that they've ended up um, finding uh, endorsing those sounds to be positive. So, so if you look okay. at right so if you look at something that has clear associations with real world significant life situations like laughing and, and vomiting right, um, <laughs> you get the same results um, in musical anhedonics as you do with controls. But if you isolate that um, association, right, and and you look at some purely generated sounds that don't really have any kind of semantic meanings or any associations with Uh them, then even if they're non-musical sounds, um, then you start to see that musical anhedonics don't like those sounds in general as much as controls. Okay, interesting. I hadn't thought about that, that non-musical sounds do tend to have sort of a cultural association of positive Mm -hmm. or negative with them that we've kind of learned. Interesting. Well, do we know what causes musical anhedonia? Like, is it, I I know you mentioned that anhedonia can be, in in general, can be a a factor of depression, but specific musical anhedonia, are there factors like genetics? Are there things like traumatic brain injury that can cause this? I know in a past episode of this podcast, uh, we did look at the 
sort of the dark side of music and talked about how music is powerful and it it can be used negatively like music has actually been used as a torture device so can musical anhedonia be caused by certain exposures to music or other stimuli whether it's in childhood or beyond that well it's important to know that musical anhedonia is not the same as misophonia right so when these people with musical anhedonia say they don't like music they also don't hate music. <laughs> so uh, so there, there's a different population of folks um, who call that misophonia, who when they hear certain trigger sounds, they feel disgusted okay. or they feel extremely angry. Um, and so there are some sad cases like that, for example, uh, of a, a teenager who couldn't stand the sound of their parents' voice. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I think that's very, that's really a sad case and that's an active area of research is misophonia but uh, when we're talking about musical anhedonia it's quite a different situation where they usually say that they don't like music they don't understand maybe why other people like music mm -hmm. but and then maybe they find it slightly annoying because culturally there's so much encouragement to enjoy music and, sure. and maybe their friends like music um, but they don't particularly hate it so it's not like um, they find the sounds to be jangly or or anger-inducing or disgusting. They just really don't care about it. Okay. So are there any common denominators or causes of this, whether it's genetics or traumatic brain injury or something else? Yeah. So what we're seeing is that there's differences in structural and functional brain connectivity between the auditory system and the reward system in people with specific musical anhedonia. So there are a few different uh, studies that have come out now that look at, uh, on one hand, brain function when people are listening to music that they normally would enjoy. And most people, when you're listening to music that you enjoy, you have this, um, the auditory areas of your brain become more connected to the reward centers of your brain. Mm. And this functional connectivity was disrupted in people with specific musical anhedonia. And then we've also gone on to look at not just functional activity and connectivity, but structural connectivity. So the white matter pathways that are between the auditory network and the reward network in the brain. And we find that also to be disrupted in people with specific musical anhedonia. So it, it seems to be a brain connectivity problem, not specific regions of the brain that are disrupted, but the connections, connectivity between these auditory and reward networks. Okay, so there's a reduced connectivity between two brain regions. Oh, two brain networks. Green, yes, green which is networks. set of regions. Okay, yeah. and would you say that the two networks, you, you mentioned the reward center, and then the second network it would be sound perception? Yeah, the auditory network, which is important for perceiving sounds and also for forming predictions to sounds. So not only are we reacting to sounds that we've just heard, but we're also predicting actively uh, with our brains what's about to come up. And so we think the auditory network is doing both. And then on the other hand, the other network that it's connected to is the reward network. And so that includes the classic reward centers, um, such as the ventral striatum, which disrupts its connectivity, or if you remove it, let's say in a mouse model, then the mice might not be motivated to seek out, um, let's say food or drink or other kinds of rewards that most biological creatures would find to be rewarding. 
do these brain circuitry differences have any other implications besides just the perception of music? Like, do these reduced connections or connectivity, does, does that affect other, like, creativity or physical coordination or any, like, cause and effect consequence, sense of consequence or anything like that? Or is it just very specific to music? I think it taps into a general system for forming predictions and learning from them. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, I mean, I think it's it's such an interesting question that you raise because it more generally gets into why we have music, right? <laughs> like if you have certain brain structures that are normally important for the musical experience and those are now disrupted, what else might that affect in uh-huh. your life? And, you know, I think the more general question is, um, why do we have music? How did the brain evolve to enjoy music? And what other systems might be co-opted? How is music co-opting those systems to give rise to you know, the, why you find music to be enjoyable? And I think the answer is really about predictions. Right? So something that's very important in everyday life um, and has been important for you know eons um, is the ability to not only react to what's just happened in the world, but form expectations for what's about to come next so that you can change your behavior accordingly, uh-huh. right? So if you if you see a car that's about to come at you, you're not going to uh, walk into the road, right? So, so it's that kind of basic predictions that I think our brains have evolved to be very good at. And some of those predictions can come from, you know, just physical changes like, you know, the car moving down the street. But other predictions might also come from social sources like somebody, you know, like your conversation partner's eye movement Uh or gestures, right? Or the way uh, a room full of people react together. So those kinds of predictions, um, I think, are what music really capitalizes on, right? So if you think about musical structures that a lot of Western listeners might be familiar with, let's say like C major, right? A piece of music starting in C major, it ends in, it has to end in C major, sure. right? And in, in fact, even if you have no musical training in your life, if you've uh, heard a C major piece for the first time, you would still expect it to end in C major. Sure. Right. So, and if it's so then you're like, like uh, you're leaving me hanging here. <laughs> right. Right. Or you might think it sounds wrong or that the person who's playing it didn't know what they were doing or were confused. Or, sure. Right. Or, or it might just be, or, um, be confusing. Yeah. You know, so, so that's one kind of prediction that our brain has implicitly learned to form just Mm -hmm. by being in the culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, these kinds of predictions are in music of every culture. So for example, Chinese music has often composed in the pentatonic scale, right? So our brains have also evolved to form predictions for those specific pitch categories, right? So, and I, I think that ability of the brain to form those predictions and then have have sounds come in that are either confirming or violating those predictions that in itself is rewarding for human brains because uh-huh. it helps you continuously learn and update your model of the world and and I think that's really important um, for all kinds of motivated behavior I think that's why people want to seek out new experiences 
That's why people, you know, maybe try out new foods, right? So, so those kinds of new experiences are intrinsically rewarding to learn from. Yeah. I'm wondering, do you see higher incidences of musical anhedonia with people who are experiencing fetal alcohol syndrome? Because it seems like that tends to go along with fetal alcohol syndrome as an inability to sort of predict and learn from past experiences and kind of learn that cause and effect cycle. Yeah, I think it is um, quite fundamentally an ability of the reward system that a lot of different diseases and disorders, including maybe not limited to fetal alcohol syndrome, mm-hmm. might tap into. So I think um, depression maybe is a form of not wanting to learn new information anymore, not forming, not wanting to form predictions. It also, like schizophrenia, might be a case of abnormal tagging of predictions, right? So a, a source of these predictions might come from knowing what your body is able to do, right? And if there's a disconnect between knowing what your body is able to do and your own actions, then you might end up, you know, for example, hearing voices that you actually self-generated, but you think is someone else's voice. Also, autism has been talked about as a form of um, abnormal predictions and mm. prediction and reward system, right? So okay. not being able to understand social cues from a different person, sure. right? This is a quick break to tell you about SongTrust. Did you know there is an estimated $250 million in unclaimed royalties? SongTrust is the world's largest royalty collection service. It helps artists know what royalties they're owed and collects them for you so that you, the artist, can focus on creating and producing, not administrating. With SongTrust, you can register your songs quickly in one place. SongTrust will then collect all royalties you're owed from over 50 global pay sources. SongTrust represents over 350,000 songwriters. This includes Grammy winners and brand new up-and-coming songwriters. SongTrust is currently offering Enhanced Life with Music listeners 20% off your registration fee. Just use the code ENHANCELIFE20 at checkout. You can check them out at songtrust.com. While you're there, you'll see another reason I'm a fan. SongTrust is great at explaining the very complicated music publishing world. They offer a ton of free educational resources, including virtual workshops, a blog, and the modern guide to music publishing. Go to songtrust.com and remember to use the code ENHANCELIFE20 to get 20% off your registration fee. How common is musical anhedonia? Like what percentage of the population experiences it? So it's quite rare, but it also depends on how you define it. If you really use the the gold standard that's been developed um, in the field, it's always a distribution, right? And so you end up having to draw a cutoff on the tail end of a distribution. And so the the standard that the field has evolved is, is called the Barcelona Music Reward Questionnaire. And it's a survey. And if you score below a certain cutoff on the survey, while also having normal general hedonic responses, um, as defined using another survey called the physical anhedonia scale. Uh, so the combined definition of those two scales together give you the cutoff. And it ends up being about between 1% and 3% of the population. 
Okay. So that is quite small. And when you are saying population, is that the entire population or is that the population of people, say, without brain damage, without brain injuries, that sort of thing? You know, where their brains just developed this way for some other reason. So these would be people who start out with no obvious brain damage, right? So there's also other folks that have self-identified as having acquired musical anhedonia as opposed to more congenital musical anhedonia. Mm -hmm. Acquired musical anhedonia might be if something happens to you, such as a, a brain tumor or a brain injury uh-huh. or even a, a life-changing personal event, right? Uh, that might have changed your your reward system in some way. That could lead to changes in hedonic responses to music. Um, I've seen one one case who said that they had an amount of grief because of a personal event. Their, their mother passed away, and then they received a transcranial magnetic stimulation of TMS treatment for okay. grief, even though normally you would apply that for depression. And after receiving that brain stimulation, they stopped feeling pleasure for music. Oh, wow. The brain is such a complex thing, isn't it? Wow. (laughs) Well, this podcast is called Enhanced Life with Music. Can people with music, musical anhedonia still benefit from music in any way, even if they can't enjoy what they're hearing? Can their lives still be enhanced with music? I would say that they would probably have evolved other ways of um, enhancing life. Right? I mean, in general, these are people who are not depressed, right? So, uh, so for example, um, a lot of specific musical anhedonics might enjoy art galleries, right? Or uh-huh. a, a walk in the woods or talking with, uh, with friends or, or, you know, visual art or photography. I think those are other sources of joy that, a uh, person with specific musical anhedonia would derive. But I mean, because it is really about a lack of felt emotion, uh, so there, there's a distinction between perceived and felt emotion. Felt emotion is whether you're actually um, moved by the music yourself, as opposed to you could still perceive musical emotion uh, without actually feeling it yourself. Right? So, mm-hmm. And so we're talking about a lack of felt emotion here. So I, I would say that you probably wouldn't seek out music and its otherwise benefits if you have specific musical anhedonia. Are there any interventions for musical anhedonia? Like I keep thinking about the comparison to taste and maybe that's a bad comparison, but I think like if I can't taste anything and so I lose that ability to experience pleasure from food, I would want that fixed. (laughs) Like I would want that changed. And people who have experienced that temporarily because of COVID, it's like, oh my goodness, it's so nice when you can taste again. So are there any any interventions or cures for this? Um, And even going back to that comparison, I have read since COVID that there have been people who are training people how to taste again. And I couldn't tell you the details of it, but they, they have come up with different ways of training the brain and training the mouth again. So are there any kind of cures for this? There is one group that had shown that by applying brain stimulation um, on the frontal lobe in a way that enhances the functional connectivity between the reward system 
and the auditory system, you can actually upregulate the hedonic response to music. Um, so it's almost like doping, like uh, doping with brain stimulation in some ways. Um, but you could imagine a, a brain stimulation regime that would increase your hedonic responses to music. And that's something that um, the Satori group in McGill in Montreal has done. And, and there are some other groups that, that are also working on this, I know. Um, but I think it would be it should only be used if somebody wants to be. <laughs> sure. All right. So, I mean, I think by the time that you're interviewing um, grown-ups, right, I mean, people with specific musical anhedonia have come all this way <laughs> without really finding music to be enjoyable or particularly useful in their lives. So it remains to be determined by them whether they would find um, wh whether they would want an intervention that changes that. Sure. Well, I'm just thinking of another comparison too, and that is very different, but downhill skiing. My husband loves downhill skiing and goes every year with friends to Colorado. And I, I'm just like, it, it just doesn't really interest me that much. And he kept saying, oh, you've never skied on a real mountain. You've just skied on little hills. And if you skied in Colorado, you would fall in love with it. And so one year, our family took a spring break trip to Colorado, went skiing. And as I'm on this mountain, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Like, I can see why some people love it. But I, it doesn't really do that much for me. <laughs> like I can appreciate the view from sitting in our lodge and having a nice warm cup of tea right. and reading a book while my family goes right. skiing. You join the uh, after ski. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, check the box, did it. You keep going with your friends. I'm fine. So I suppose that's probably the way some people with musical anhedonia feel like, hey, you do you, I'll do me. It doesn't bother me. Right. And, and from the first of these cases, right, going back to case BW, right, the first time I spoke with him, he was like, don't feel bad for me. I have my photography. I enjoy podcasts. Right. And that's also very sure. interesting, right? So when, Sound. when, yeah, so even though he didn't enjoy sounds, but when he heard, uh, you know, he enjoys poetry right? and he enjoys podcasts. And so having that additional linguistic route seems to change the hedonic relationship. You know, so it's not like he generally doesn't enjoy anything, right? So yeah. to me, it doesn't seem like, you know, he's in need of help. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. Well, in both of those things, poetry and podcasts where you're, you're listening to a voice, there's a cadence to voices and a cadence to poetry. And you think of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. I mean, there's a musicality to it. And so there's, uh, that's really intriguing that those are things that he enjoyed. And I think he, has, he still forms associations, right? So for example, if a song had been in a movie that he liked, then he's more likely to say that, that he doesn't dislike that song. Ah, right. So sure. again, get going back to the the power of associations that you can form with real life. Yeah. And kind of like the olfactory sense of smell, you can develop those affiliations between a smell and an event or mm -hmm. a feeling or something like that, that I imagine they could still develop those associations between a song and like you said, a movie or something else. Yep. Interesting. Well, are there any 
current gaps in the research or future directions in research in this area that um, that are sort of on the horizon that have you excited or that you're curious about or that you can tell us about? Well, I would love to know where um, developmentally this condition comes from, right? So uh, we know very little about children and, well, infants' um, sensitivity to sounds as a reward. Um, so one way to look into this is like, at what age do you start to develop strong feelings for music? Mm. And then does it depend on what sounds and what music was in your environment when you grew up, right? Does it depend on how predictable your environment was? Does it depend on whether you had the chance to get musical training? Right? So those are all uh-huh. open questions. And, and I think, um, you know, looking into the social and cognitive developmental trajectory of musical anhedonia would be, I think, really important and a really powerful way to get at, you know, this question you raised earlier of whether it's possible to come up with some interventions. Well, I'll I'll include links in the show notes to your website and then also the website for the Mind Lab. And people who want to follow and dig in more, read some of the research can definitely check out all of the information that's on those two sites. There's one page on your Mind Lab that made me laugh. There is it was the join us page where there's opportunities <laughs> to get involved in the lab. And there's that picture. <laughs> there's a picture of a sign that says you don't have to be crazy to work here. We'll train you. <laughs> I'll include the link in the show notes. Just made me smile. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, we could all stand to loosen up a little bit and not be too serious. Me for sure. But loved, loved the picture. The <laughs> Thank <there>. you. Yes, <laughs> yes. I feel like you can't take yourself too seriously if you're going to right. you know, be, be serious about research, but be too right. serious about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, I ask all of my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Is there a song or a story that you can share with us today in closing? Yes, uh, I can share a piece of music that was composed by mapping my own EEG, so my own brain waves and different frequency bands of that to musical pitches in different frequencies. It's my old brainwave song. Wow. So how did this song come to be? Well, I've always been interested in music and brain. Um, and one day I started to map my own brainwaves into sounds. And I found the result to be really curious and, and one way, a, a kind of strangely intimate way to, uh, to get some, um, get access to your innermost being in a way. Uh, so thought of it as a, a kind of mirror where you can change the music and then also have that music change you, right? So by focusing or by relaxing or by opening and closing your eyes, you can change the electrical potentials as they're being recorded on your scalp and then that being fed back to music and that music being my own kind of biofeedback loop. Um, I found that to be really fun to explore. And this is something that has a tradition um, in experimental music in 1960s. The composer Alvin Lussier uh, mapped his own EEGs onto uh, a massively amplified electronics and a drum set. <laughs> so uh, very exciting um, and a seminal work. So I'm just really 
doing my own little version of that. Thank you so much to Dr. Louie for joining us today and for sharing that EEG song. You can also view a video of this song in the show notes that includes a light show that is algorithmically generated by a neural network model that takes acoustic input of music and simulates its corresponding brain activity. Today's show notes, including a transcript of this episode, can be found at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast. This is episode 170. A link to that page is also in the episode details right in your podcast app. As always, you can connect with me on email, mindy at mpetersonmusic.com, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. All Enhanced Life with Music episodes are evergreen, so be sure to check out the back catalog for more ways that music can make your life better. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, may your life be enhanced with music.